0: You're listening to Calvary La Habra's podcast. For more information, visit us at calvarylh.com. Thanks for listening. Lord, we love you. And we, we love worshiping you. We love any time of the day or night where we have a moment with you, some time with you, where we encounter you. We love you. And Lord, when we gather in a setting like this and our focus is on an audience of one, and that is you, it is, uh, it is moving to say the least. We pray you would be blessed by our surrender, by our adoration and praise uh, of you and for you. Lord, this week we, for years, have just set this week aside and um, focused on you. And here we are again, doing the same thing, uh, what we call Passion Week, just considering what you endured, what you what you did, what you taught, what you wanted us to learn um, from all of that, that whole final week, um, and we'll be here throughout this week just for you. And so speak to us here, those online and all the various people that'll be in homes and Um, on this property virtually every day this week in the evenings and we pray you'd bless it and that many many who don't know you would come to know you and give their lives to you and we who are saved would just grow in our our faith our knowledge of you our love for you Um, we'd look back on this week and just say man we gave you place and you met us so we love you, to your glory we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn our Bibles to Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, and we're going to pick up in verse 28. Years ago, when um, we first started our Bible study, there was, you know, a lot of the, the young guys and gals that came around in the surf shop there, and, and they, they came from broken homes, and around the holidays, I would always ask them what they were doing, Christmas time, especially in Easterwood, and I found out that a lot of times um, what they did really didn't have much of a, uh, a spiritual content to it, and so uh, Lori and I, we started doing things around uh, those holidays that would, you know, bring them in, and we can connect them, and way back even a few years ago with those young adults, we would um, not just have a, an Easter celebration, but we would, we would say, come every day, just come to the shop And we will read an account of what happened the week before Jesus went to the cross. Um, Of course, as God would have it, we grew into a church and we became a little more official with this. And um, to this day, I I just I love this part of the year. Even someone the other day was asking me in the community, hey, so what are you gonna do for Easter? And and I'm like, the same thing I always do. And they're like, oh, that same message? No, 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 no. No. That's you 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 come and hear me on Easter, obviously. you come Easter, you're like, you give the same message every time I come. Well, that's what you'd think if you come just on Easter. <laughs> but I said, no, 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 actually, I'm, did, I'm part of this larger family. And we get together all week. You do? Yeah. Every single day we get together and we do these events. And he's like, how can I be part of that? I'm like, just, I'm glad you asked. Here you go. Here's the details to that. But it's, it's important that we get our minds wrapped around what Jesus who he was why he came what he did and how we are supposed to benefit from what he offers us it's really important even if we're saved here this morning we can't think about that enough as an exercise i took our church on wednesday night through the the gospel of mark and i said i want to i want to start this whole passion week tonight so wednesday night we really start our passion week and i said <clears throat> I want to go up to the north, and I want to to start as far north as Jesus was and just start walking back to Jerusalem with him for the last time. And I want to think about every, like, really important thing that he said or did, and I want to extrapolate from that what we today should still be able to learn. So we went all the way up north, and we started with the Transfiguration. And he took Peter, James, and John off to the side. He walked up to a high high mountain, which would have been Mount Hermon. At the base of that mountain would have been the headwaters of the Jordan River. And he took them up there, and he just says he was transfigured before them. Now, these guys would become leaders in the church. These guys would have to be the ones that would tell people who he really was. They would have to be convinced. And so he just peeled back a little bit and let them see the essence of his glory. It was undeniable what was beaming from him, his deity, the glory of God, shined from him. He was showing them, "I'm God. I've been telling you this and telling you this and telling you this, trying to connect the dots between who the Messiah is as God and me. Check this out." And then, if that wasn't enough, this cloud comes over the mountain. Woo. And, and the Father speaks, "This is my beloved son." Hear him. And when the cloudless, Moses and Elijah, who were there, they're gone. And it says, no one was there but Jesus only. So we went, what are we to learn from this? He really wants us to know that he is God. And as God, he wants to make it about him alone. Follow him. Then they would move down to Capernaum. The city of Capernaum is a city that Jesus did a lot of miracles in. He, he ministered in, and, and as he was walking through that area, in the area of the, the, the Galilee he began to talk about his death. Seven times the Gospels record Jesus talking about his death. I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They're going to kill me, but after three days, I'm going to rise from the dead. And it says the disciples didn't connect those dots, and they were afraid to ask him, hey, we're not quite connecting the dots. Can you be a little more detailed? As they went through the city of Capernaum, they began to talk about which one of them is the greatest. Strange. And he's like, well, well hold on, I just want you to know, if anyone desires to be first, he's going to be last. And and it's, it's, it's and you've got to be the servant of all. These are the things he was teaching his disciples that had fallen for three and a half years, just days before he would go to the cross. He would talk on the topic of hell. He would warn them, don't stumble anybody. Don't do anything that would shipwreck another person's faith. Oh, and by the way, you have to think about your own eternity as well. Take it very, very serious. If there's anything about you that will keep you from following me, cut it out of your life. How did he say it? If your hand causes you to be to offend yourself, cut it off. If, you're, if, you're, if your foot... If your eye, pluck it out. He wasn't talking in the literal sense. He was saying, take this very serious yourself. Eternity is a long time. Get it right. He would talk about marriage, God's original intention for marriage. He would talk about divorce. He would talk about the kind of faith that it takes to enter into the kingdom of heaven. He would talk about childlike faith, the innocence and the dependence of a child upon Apparent, that's, that's what he was equating to what we need to display towards him if we are to enter into the kingdom of heaven by putting faith in him. He would talk about the dangers of riches. And the disciples would see all of this and observe all of this. And he would say how hard it is for those who have riches to enter into the kingdom of God. He was peeling them back as they would come to the area of Jericho, 18 miles more until they would come to the city of Jerusalem for the last time. There, it says that as he was walking, that the disciples followed him at a distance, and it says, and I quote, they were amazed and they followed and they were afraid. And they were afraid because of how resolute he was. They were afraid because of how determined he was to this mission of dying on a cross. They were completely like, wow, he said where it would happen. He said when it would happen. He said how it would happen. And he talked about that, 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 that it's about to happen. And, and he's so determined to go. He's not backing down. He's not... He's not waffling. He's not freaking out. He was so determined that they freaked out. And when Jesus saw that, he says to them, and he opens up his heart, almost as if you were carrying a burden so heavy you just had to look in the eyes of someone that you know cared about you to just say, listen, this is really going to happen. Would you bear this a little with me? Can I just get it off my heart? Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man calls himself that, it's a messianic title, that's why it's capitalized in our New Testament, will be betrayed to the chief priest and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him to the Gentiles, and they're going to mock him, and they're going to, they're going to scourge him, and they're going to spit on him, and they're going to kill him. And on the third day, he's going to rise again. This is the most detailed account that Jesus gave of his death, burial, and resurrection. Just hours before it would all take place. And so here in Luke chapter 19, we now, they've come from Jericho. They have come just to the, the west side of Jerusalem. There's two cities, Bethpage and Bethany, that he is going to go in and probably spend the night there and do some ministry in that area. Eventually, they're going to come over to the city of Jerusalem from the west at the top of the Mount of Olives and enter into the city for the triumphal entry, what we call as Palm Sunday, verse 28. When he said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew, drew near Bethpage in Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you where you will enter and find a colt that is tied on which no one has ever sat. Notice the details. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing that colt? You shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and they found it. Notice, just like Jesus had said. There was the village. They found a a colt. Interestingly enough, no one had ever ridden that that donkey. It's just as he said, as they began to loose it. Wouldn't you know it? Just as Jesus said, the, the owners came out and they asked, what are you doing? And they responded just as Jesus said they should respond. The Lord has need of him. Then they bring him to Jesus, this donkey in verse 35, this young donkey. And they, they threw their outer garments on, on the back of this donkey that had never been ridden. They set Jesus on him. And as he went down riding this donkey down the Mount of Olives towards the city of Jerusalem, towards the eastern gate would have been the entryway into the city, it says that they threw their uh, that, that as they went, many speaking of those along the road now began to spread their outer garments, their clothes on the road. Then, as they were drawing nearer, like closer down the descent of the Mount of Olives, this massive multitude of disciples began to rejoice and pray God with or praise God, excuse me, with a loud voice for all. Notice the mighty works. That they had seen. They're saying, "Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest." It's Passover season. It's AD 32. This beautiful city of Jerusalem, which would normally have about five to 600,000 citizens, has swelled up during Passover, as all of the Jews would come to commemorate the feast. Of Passover with some probably two to two and a half million people. Just a few days prior, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, a man that was in the tomb for four days. Everybody knew he was dead. Jesus came, his sisters came out weeping. Everybody watched Jesus go to the graveyard, to the tomb of Lazarus, who was there for four days, dead. And call him forth and give him new life. John's Gospel, chapter 12, the Jewish rulers, it says, decided to kill Lazarus, this guy who Jesus just raised from the dead, because on account of him, on account of Lazarus being this amazing trophy of the power, on display of the power of Jesus Christ, and and just displaying deity, only God can give life, on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. In verse 17 of John chapter 12, John says that the people with, who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, they bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that, this, or that he had done this sign. So we're starting to see what kind of makes up this crowd that's lining the road, putting their clothes their outer garments on the road for this man riding on a donkey with his disciples following him in john 12 19 the pharisees therefore said among themselves you see that you are accomplishing nothing look the world has gone after him and that is exactly what's happening when jesus arrives at Jerusalem. John would also say that that a great multitude had come to the feast. And when they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches. That's why we call this Palm Sunday. They cut them down off of palm trees. And as others were throwing their outer garments on the road, people were throwing just palm branches on the road, as well as Jesus is descending down that mountain and they're crying out. Jesus had, with his disciples, predicted a specific village a specific donkey that had never been ridden, a specific owner that would question them. Only divine omniscience could do this. Only deity could speak with such predetermination and prophetic accuracy. So it's all happening just as Jesus said, showing that he is absolutely in control. At this point in Matthew's account, it says in Matthew 21, 4 through 5, All of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophet, saying, and Then he quotes the prophet Zechariah speaking about this event. Zechariah 9, verse 9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. Now, this is what the Jewish people wanted. This is what they saw. They saw a king, he's going to liberate us from Rome. But it goes on. He is just and having salvation. (laughs) This is what the people of Israel will miss this week. But he's lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the full of a donkey. That prophecy was given 500 years earlier that the people would hail their Messiah, their King, as he was coming into their city, the city of Jerusalem, riding very humbly and very gentle on a donkey. As all of this is happening in verse 39, some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered them and he said, Listen, I tell you that if all of these should remain silent, the stones would immediately cry out. My creation will recognize me for who I am. It's just going to happen. When the religious leaders heard the crowds like rejoicing and praising God with a loud voice for all the like mighty works that they had seen done through Jesus, they're like, Blessed is, is this king who comes in the name of the Lord. They all knew. The crowds knew and the religious leaders knew that that was absolutely reserved for the Messiah. But the religious, the religious leaders did not believe that Jesus was he. So rebuke your disciples. But it was a passionate crowd. It was a moving crowd. It was a crowd that was alive. Many in this crowd had heard Jesus teach. Many in this crowd had themselves been healed or touched or delivered by Jesus Himself. Many of them would have known relatives. The news about Lazarus just a few days ago still buzzing around town. Matthew says in Matthew chapter 21, verse 9, He tells us that they were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, save now. Blessed is the Son of David. Save now, Messiah. Save now, Messiah. A lot of what they were saying was a recitation. They were reciting the Hellals. Specifically, Psalm 118, the Psalm of Deliverance. Verse 19, and I quote, Open to me the gates of righteousness, and I will go through them, and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you, for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected, speaking of Jesus and their rejecting Jesus, has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, It is marvelous in our eyes. Verse 24. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord. And he has given us light. What is that light? Well, it's buying the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. That's a reference to Jesus and the cross. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. The prophets had laid it out so clearly. The psalmist had laid it out so clearly, but the religious leaders refused to believe Jesus was the one to fulfill the prophecies concerning the Messiah. But Jesus saw it all coming. He understood exactly what was happening. This is important for us who are living in 2022. Because there is a lot more prophecies to come. All of these prophecies that Jesus will fulfill with his life, with his death, with his burial... And with his resurrection, Jesus was all in. He knew that he was fulfilling those very prophecies. And he knows that there is a lot more to come as well. There are a lot of prophecies concerning his second coming, just as his first coming. Just as Jesus is arranging everything on this day, Palm Sunday, so he is arranging everything in the future The day yet to come, his second coming. This day was all about Jesus arranging everything so that he could be received publicly as the Messiah and as King. One day in the future, he's going to do the same at his second coming. This day, he is descending down from a mountain, riding a donkey, surrounded by his disciples with people recognizing him as just that king. The second coming, which is yet to come, he is going to be descending from heaven and he's going to be riding a white horse and he will be surrounded with all of the redeemed who he's taken up seven years prior in the rapture of the church. Every aspect of Jesus' life is part of a divine timetable. A divine timetable that is backed up by prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. In Daniel chapter 9, a classic prophecy that talks about this event, about his coming as Messiah and his crucifixion. The angel Gabriel was speaking to Daniel while Daniel was in Babylon. He says, Daniel, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Seventy weeks, the word in the Hebrew is the the word heptad. We use the word decade to describe a ten-year period. Hebrew, it's the word heptad. Seventy-seven-year periods are set aside. 490 years of history are set aside by God, specifically... For the nation of Israel, for his people, and his city, the city of Jerusalem. Hmm. Okay, well, what's the purpose of that? Verse 24, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to deal with sins, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the Most holy. he tells us that these 69 of these seven-year periods will take place beginning with a command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah will be cut off. So the question is, when was that command given? Well, as we begin to study the Word of God, this command that would be given to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, that would be given by King Artaxerxes, And it would be given on March 14th, 445 B.C. We see that in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2. The moment that that command was given, the, the, the clock begins to tick on this prophecy that we have given to Daniel. It begins to move towards the day that the Messiah will appear and be cut off. In 1895, there was a a scholar, a a brilliant scholar, by the name of Sir Robert Anderson. He practiced, or he studied law. He studied theology. He was a brilliant mind. He was the leader of Scotland Yard. And he researched this prophecy. And he was a brilliant mind. And he, he would write a book called The Coming Prince, And his work within that book would go down as like some of the most scholarly work of his time. And what he did is he demonstrated through mathematical accuracy the fulfillment of this prophecy. He used a a 30 or excuse me, 360-day year calendar as they did in that time. He adjusted for leap years. And he came up with this this number of days, 173,880 days. You move forward from the command that King Artaxerxes gave. And it brings you to April 6th, 32 AD, the exact day that Jesus told his disciples, go get me that donkey. The Messiah, the one that is about to Come, his first coming that Daniel talked about, and be cut off by way of crucifixion. He's coming to deal with transgressions, to put an end to sins. That day has come. This is the day that Zechariah prophesied about 500 years earlier. This is the day that the psalmist prophesied about several hundred years earlier. We look at Christianity, and we kind of stand it up to all other religions of the world. And there's many of them, and have been many. No other religion can make the kind of claims that we make. What stands us apart from all other religions is, number one, the tomb of our founder is empty. Amen. Yeah, we... We don't need to wait till next week to celebrate that, you know? It's really, it's really cool to do that every day. Secondly, we have a book that is inspired, pinned down, inspired by an eternal God who has always been, who writes about things yet to come long before they come, and they actually are fulfilled just like he said they would be. More than one-third of the Bible is prophecy. More than one-third of this amazing book speaks of things that must come to pass long before they do come to pass. The oldest book in the Bible is Job. Job was written around 2000 B.C. So men have had almost 4,000 years to disprove prophecies in God's Word. And at this particular time, no one thus far has been able to prove any inaccuracies on the basis of prophecy. Isaiah 41, verse 21, God says to the pagans about their gods, Present your case. let Let me see how real your gods are. Bring forth your strong reasons. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them predict things about the future, is what he says. Let them show the former things. What they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare to us things to come, show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that they are truly God's. But of course, there's only one true living God. And he says in Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to any carved image. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare, before they spring forth, I will tell you. Over and over, God is saying, this is the evidence that what I say I am, I am. This is the evidence that says, what I say will happen will actually happen. Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, Peter was being challenged in his day. You know, he's now a pastor. He's now ministering. And, and he was challenged in his day regarding truth. There were false teachers that were challenging the accuracy of what he said, the claims he made about Jesus. And so he says this, and really, really pay attention in these these next few moments. This is very, very important. This kind of ties the knot of where we're going. He says, you know, we didn't follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses. He says, when it comes to, to telling you about who Jesus is and and, and what he did, and the claims that he made, and what he offered us. Look at, we weren't just manufacturing some story. We weren't just like t- talking about some myth. No, we personally observed what he did and what he said. And in order to support his point that he's not just making these things up, he gives some facts about the time that Jesus called he and James and John up to that mountain and was transfigured before him. He's like, he he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a a voice came to him, the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Look, you know, we might have had our questions just like you. But we, we went to this mountain and he displayed deity. We heard the voice of the Father say, this is my Son. If you ask Peter... Is Jesus the Son of God? He'd say, yes. How do you know? Well, I saw deity radiate right through his entire being on a mountain. I heard the Father speak from heaven, identifying him as his Son. And then in verse 19 he says, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. What is he saying? He's saying everything that the scriptures said about him, I believe it all that much more because it was proven by Him. In John's Gospel, chapter 1, when Jesus was like just starting His ministry, Philip found Nathanael. He said to him, We have found Him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of of Joseph. Over 300 prophecies relating to his, his life, the, 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 just the 300 prophecies concerning the Messiah are fulfilled in Jesus. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. We got it. And as Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on this donkey, he absolutely understood who he was and why he was there. He absolutely understood he was fulfilling prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. That's why when they were shouting out to him these prophecies that were assigned for the Messiah, he embraced it. That's why he was openly and publicly okay with it. Save now, save now, save now. Absolutely, he knew that he was there to be the Savior of the world. He knew he was fulfilling his Father's will for his life. He knew he was fulfilling the prophets and what they had foretold hundreds of years earlier. He would say in Matthew's Gospel, on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth will pass away, not one jot, not a common, a comma or a period or anything will by no means pass away from the law until it is all fulfilled. And if we just stopped right here and we just went through every single prophecy concerning the Messiah that Jesus fulfilled up until this point, we'd be like, he's God. He's the Messiah. If we just went to, to next Sunday, we make it to next Sunday and we go through this whole week and we're like, look at all the prophecies that he fulfilled. Look at what the Bible said about who the Messiah would be, and how Jesus fit that bill down to the very people that would arrest him and try him, and what they would do with his clothes during the crucifixion. And we can just go on and on and on. Like, wow, he's God. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. Okay, now what does that man say to us? What are his claims? Did he just do it so we'd be got? We got it. We've connected the dots. No, He came to save you. He came to save me. He came to do that with such accuracy that we would go, He is God. He is the Savior. He is the one that invited me to follow Him. He is the one who gave His life for me. He came to ransom me. He came to redeem me. He came to save me. He won't force that on me. That's a a choice. I I need to put my faith in Him if I believe if i believe if i believe what the bible says about him i am forced with a choice every single person lining this road 2000 years ago was 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 staring at a choice accept him or reject him he's the one who said everything written in the word will be fulfilled I, I challenge the first service to go home and read Matthew chapter twenty-four and just, just look at what he says about like the future. These things that have yet to be fulfilled, but they're prophecies that he says will be fulfilled and by him. Amen. And just ask yourself, put yourself on the side of the road, just like these guys. But we're just two thousand years later. He's right here, right now. And and how would right now? How are we responding to Jesus, based on what the Bible says about him? He says he's coming. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, when no man expects, he's coming back for his bride. Ten of us are like, yeah, yeah, come, so. The rest of us are like, take your time, man. Life's good here. Have you seen the gas prices lately? Come now, Lord Jesus, come now. He talks about a tribulation. He talks about, like, I'm coming to save you from my wrath, bride. But he talks about the wrath to come. Whew. You don't want to be on this planet when that happens. But all the prophets talk about that. Jesus claimed to be the one that will fulfill that. And as much as everything was fulfilled with his first coming, with great pinpoint accuracy, so everything is going to be fulfilled with his second coming, with pinpoint accuracy. 2,000 years ago, they had, their, they had their Mexican blankets laid out. It was a parade. They had their beach chairs. They had their little umbrellas. They were like, yeah, this is cool. It's a parade. They were all hyped up. Matthew says that when they, they were saying, save now, save now, there's a word in there called seisma. It's a Greek word which it, it talks about. It was, they were so loud, the ground shook. Hmm. Amazing. Verse 41, as they drew near, he saw the city, and he weeps over it, saying, if you would have known even you, especially in this your days, talking specifically to the Jews, and those that are there, in your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Their day. And the prophets had laid it out so clearly that every Jew should have known that this is their day. Their Messiah is right in front of them to give them peace. What is that peace a reference towards? It's a reference towards right standing with God. We are born in this world as sinners with sinful nature, and there's enmity between us and God. And God does not put the responsibility on any of us as human beings to deal with that which separates us from him. He placed that on the one who's riding on the donkey. He placed it on his son. Who will bear our sin on a cross in just five more days from this day? Romans chapter 5, verse 1 it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm. Their day, the things that make for their peace, what are those things? Those things are the things that Jesus is about to do, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection. The peace, the right standing with God that he offers mankind was riding into Jerusalem on a donkey right in front of them. But it says now it's it's hidden from their eyes. He's not talking about they couldn't see him. He's talking about the condition of their heart. They just didn't... Understand the significance of all of those prophecies and how that connects to them they, they didn't understand the significance of all of those prophecies and how it connected to Jesus and then how his dying on the cross being cut off and dealing with sin would benefit them and so they were seismic it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It could have been that you were in a section in this parade where you're just completely, yeah, he raised my neighbor from the dead. Yeah, that was awesome. That dude was dead. And when Jesus, he is, I saw it. You could have been part of that. You could have been part of one of the blind men that Jesus healed, some of the lepers that were cleansed. You could have been next to anybody and been all like hyped up over how he has impacted them, someone else. We do that. But it was their day as a nation. And many of them who are saying, Save now, save now, save now on Palm Sunday, on Good Friday, if you're here on Friday, you're going to go, Whoa, didn't they change their tune in just five days? They're going to be crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And so he was quite possibly this rabbi that rode into town on a donkey and was taking all kinds of people from your religious movement. If you were a Pharisee or a devout Orthodox Jew that was all about church. You could have been celebrating and then, this is really cool. This guy is going to be a political leader. I could just see it. He's got the cool hair. He's got the look. He's got a big following. He does amazing things. He multiplies food. That's a good thing. No politician offers that these days. Most people wanted Jesus on their terms. I want you to, would you just overthrow Rome? Rome? Would you just liberate us from the tyranny of Rome? There was a lot of people doing this. Yeah, that dude, look what he did with that one dead guy. Think of what he can do if he sets up a throne right now. There was a lot of that. It was their day. And many missed their day. They missed it. They just, it, they didn't understand the significance of who he was and what he was offering them. They did not know the time of their visitation, the time of God's coming to them. And this is why Jesus weeps. Jesus had told the religious leaders in John chapter 5, you search the scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. They knew that there was a promised Messiah. They knew that the Messiah would bring salvation and eternal life and all of that. But they wouldn't allow Jesus to be that in their own hearts and minds. You were not willing to come to me that you might receive that from me. This was not only their day, this was his day. His day to make a public appearance to enter into Jerusalem as the Passover Lamb of God, to begin to be inspected on Monday and Tuesday as we will consider in homes. This is his day to enter into the city and have that last meal with his disciples, to be arrested, to be falsely accused, tried, brutally crucified. Buried and resurrected just as it was foretold by the prophets. Just as he was telling them over the last three years. It was his day to make a public appearance and own it. And to be that for you and I. And because he saw the hardness of their hearts, the fickleness of their hearts, their inability to not make it about themselves and make it about him, he weeps. He weeps over hardened hearts, he still does. He weeps over sin that separates him from, from us, he still does. He weeps over those who are unwilling to come to him and receive the salvation that he offers. And he weeps over the judgment that they face as a result of of rejecting him. They just missed it when he was right in front of them. What would that have been like to look into the eyes of Jesus and you're like, and he's crying as he looks at you? The intensity. Intensity. And he weeps over, like, the judgment that is coming. Like, he's like, the days are going to come when your enemy is going to, you know, build walls and, and camp around you and close you in on every side and level you and your children. And, and there's not going to be any stones left. It's going to be total destruction. He weeps because God, who sees the future, looks into the future. And, okay, we're 32 A.D. and 70 A.D., Rome is going to lay siege, Rome is going to lay siege. One million, one hundred thousand Jews will be killed. Ninety-seven thousand will be taken into captivity. It's all chronicled by secular historians. In my closing, hmm, think through this. When Rome laid siege on a city, you knew it was coming. It wasn't like they just rolled in and took you out. They were already there. And following the resurrection of Jesus, it would intensify. And before long, usually about three years before they would take over a city, they would start building encampments all around the city. Any of you that have ever traveled to Israel with us, we always like going up to Masada. And we get up to the top of Masada, which is not in Jerusalem, it's down south by the Dead Sea. But you can look from the top at all of this desert area, and you can see the Roman encampments that were built in 67 to 70 AD. Giant stone walls. And then you kind of go, oh, when they laid siege on Jerusalem, many of the Jews fled here. It was a a summer palace for Herod. There's a whole other story behind that. But you just get a picture. Why do you why do you paint that picture in our, our mind's eye right now? Because I want you to think through this. He warned them. With amazing accuracy, he warned them. And we too have, living at in 2022, we have the warnings, you might say, of the coming judgment with great accuracy. It's been absolutely spoken up by the prophets. You can go through Daniel chapter 9 and we could. Go to our studies on that, and you'll, you'll, it's very detailed, but you'll be like, wow, there's, there's a lot of prophecies about coming judgment at the end of the age. You don't want to be around and face that. And those same prophecies Jesus claimed to be part of, just like he did with them 2,000 years ago. So what was it like to be an average Jewish citizen that, that knew what the prophets said, knew what Jesus claimed, but you rejected him just the same? And you go, oh, well, but he warned us about a coming judgment when, like, we're going to be overthrown. And now you begin to see the stage being set for that judgment by Rome. Folks, we're living in a very similar time. A very very similar time. I was talking to some of my friends the other day that they're just like, man, our our kids aren't walking with the Lord. If you have a prodigal man, pray for them. And my heart was going out to them. And I said, you know, God is so faithful. He's going to do something to wake them up. And I, I, I hate to put it in this context, but I believe we're so close to the return of Jesus. I just, this is me. Maybe not you, but this is me. When I read this, this is what I think about. I think about these faces of these kids that grew up in our church and are not walking with Jesus. And the day that he takes home All of those who continued to walk with Jesus. And those prodigals, the word of God is not going to return void. They're going to go, everyone who warned me is gone. Everyone who was walking with Jesus, everyone who took this serious and wasn't playing a game was gone. And you know what else they're going to see? They're going to see everyone who was playing a game. They're going to see it. And I believe it's going to be an aha moment. I really do. There's going to be all kinds of saints in the tribulation, all kinds of people converted during the tribulation. Horrible way to go. Jesus has warned us over and over and over. You don't want to be part of that. Live your life. Let's go back to where we started. Come down from Mount Hermon with Jesus. Why does he warn us about marriage? Why does he warn us about heaven and hell? Why does he warn us about the, the serious? Like, take this serious. If anything gets like, in the way of like me and you and you follow me to eternity, cut it out of your life. Why? Why does he over and over and over look at the disciples with heavy eyes and remind them of who he is and why he came and what he's doing for them? Why does he keep bearing his soul? Why does God weep Because he loves us. He just loves us. And he wants to save us. That's why he sent his son. You could be a person here today that has come here or come to another church and you're exactly like some of those people that set along that route, the descent of the Mount of Olives. And you've cheered on others. You even believe that Jesus does fulfill all of this. you've never personally embraced him. You might have embraced religion, but he didn't come here to establish another religion. He came to establish a personal, intimate relationship with you because he loves you. Amen. He loves you so much he wants to spend all of eternity with you. Amen. I could only hang out with some of you guys for about a week. <laughs> eternity will get past all that. Some of you could only hang out with me for about a day. But he went to that cross with you in mind. He wept with you in mind. Because he wanted to save you from an eternity apart from him. He does not want any of us to go to hell. He's patient. He's long-suffering, not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And if you're already saved here today, I am. I'm born again. I believe if my life ends today, I will see you there. I don't know what I look like, but probably more handsome and more humble. Get up there and you're like, look at Lance. He's bald and overweight and everything. All those jokes about how handsome he was. God really showed him. If you're safe like I am, it should be our prayer that we'd hear a study like this, and we would weep. We would weep over our loved ones and our friends that don't know them. And we would be as in love with them as Jesus was, to where we would sit down with them. would share the truth about Jesus with them so they don't have to wake up one day and we're gone. It'd be kind of cool to have them go with us. So, Lord, thank you for coming. This first coming, as we begin to dig in on this this week, man, just just draw us close to you. Just draw us close. And for any that are here, and you've, you know, you've heard this, and you're like, man, I need to make it right with Jesus. Mead's going to be up here; he's going to play us in a song, and and um, I'm going to give an invitation this morning for you to to accept the Lord, or maybe just you are a believer, and 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 you just you're not right with Him. You know, you're just maybe you're a prodigal or You've walked away from him. Whatever term would define you as just not being right with the Lord, you, you know what that is. But This morning you'd say, I, I really need prayer. I need to, like, give my life to Jesus or I need to, like, run back to him and say, here I am again. I'm a Christian, but I'm not right with you. And as we sing this song right now, um, I'm just going to invite you to come up out of your seat and and stand up here with me. And, and um, you know, if you brought someone as a guest, maybe you would just lean over and say, hey, would you like to go up there? I'll, I'll stand with you. Or, or maybe if someone brought you, ask them if they would come up here and stand with you. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's a, a challenging, intense moment. And I know your hands start sweating and your heart starts racing. I don't want to stand in front of a bunch of people. But, but again, Jesus stood openly and publicly for us and it's just an opportunity to say I really have heard you, Jesus and this is real uh, I, maybe for some of you, you've, it's just been the religious thing way too long and you feel the Lord is weeping hard, his weeping eyes for you this morning and you're like, I need to be all in I'm going to invite you to come up too and just stand here and, and just, if some people start coming, more will, that's just the way it works but And some of our leaders here might even come up and put their their hand on your shoulder and pray with you. But let's just spend a couple of minutes and let's respond. I believe there's a number of people that just need to get it right with Jesus right now. Just get up out of your seat and just ask people, excuse me, excuse me, they'll let you through and come on up. Respond now.